Hey everybody, welcome to week four, episode four of our series, Oh Brother, where we're walking through the New Testament letter of James. Now, James was Jesus's half-brother, but he was also his younger brother. And we've said every week that younger siblings, we learn a lot from our big siblings, our big brothers and sisters, things what to do and things what not to do. And I'm sure that James had a hard standard to live up to as he was following his big brother, Jesus. But he knew a lot because he watched his brother, Jesus. So after Jesus was uh, killed and he was resurrected, James became a leader in the early church and he wrote letters to early Jesus followers, encouraging them to grow up and be mature and complete and like growing in their faith. And he said that there were these pitfalls that you need to watch out for that are recorded for us in the book of James. And every week we've looked at some of these pitfalls. We've talked about the pitfall of temptation. We've talked about the pitfall of discrimination or favoritism that has no place in a Jesus follower's life. And last week we talked about the power and the pitfall of our words, what comes out of our mouth. And this morning we're going to talk about another big one that doesn't get a ton of press but it can be so dangerous to us and it can be a roadblock for us growing to be complete and mature in our faith. And it's this, pride. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning, the danger of pride. And you know, when you think about the word pride, there's probably some uh, pretty bombastic personalities that come to your mind or celebrities that were very conceited, very prideful. Here, here's a couple quotes from some of my favorites. I think about the great uh, Muhammad Ali, the great boxer. This is something he said. He says, I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Can you imagine like having that kind of bravado? And he continued on, he says, if you even dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. I think this guy would have a hard time getting like a normal person's job, but it worked really well for him to be that cocky in the boxing arena. And then we can talk about the notorious Kanye, who I don't know if he would still say this because now he's a professed follower of Jesus. I hope he wouldn't still say this, but this is one of my favorite quotes from pride-filled Kanye West. He said this, my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. His greatest pain in life was never being able to see himself at a concert. That just speaks for itself, right? I mean, pride is this crazy thing. I mean, it's really easy for us to spot pride in other people and be like, man, they are so full of themselves. They are so prideful. But when we turn it back around on ourselves, sometimes it's very difficult for us to spot pride in ourselves. Uh, just a few weeks back, uh, Megan had had a rough day and she had planned on making dinner, but she's like, I'm just exhausted. Can you pick something up? So I called a local restaurant and I was going to do like some curbside pickup to where I didn't have to get out of my car just to be cautious and they were going to bring it to my car. So I call order at a restaurant. Um, I actually get there five minutes after they said the food was supposed to be done. I pull up, I call the number to let them know I'm here. I'm the only car there in line. And all of a sudden uh, there are other cars pulling up and people are bringing their food right out to them. Another car pulls up, bringing their food right out to them. This goes on for about 20 minutes. And I don't know if it was just that I was hangry or I was hungry and a little bit of mixture of angry, or I was just starting to get really, really upset. But I started to have this attitude shift. I started thinking, man, I deserve to have my food. I've been here longer than that car, than that car. I mean, I did everything right, so I deserve to have this. I started getting full of myself thinking about what I thought I deserved. And then I rolled down my window the next time that um, the waitress comes out to another person's car and I say, ma'am, is there something wrong with my order? I've been out here for 30 minutes waiting. And I must have had a little bit of mm in my voice, a little bit of attitude in my voice. And she goes, oh, sir, I am so, so sorry. I'm the only person working tonight and we are really slammed. And I felt terrible because I could almost see tears well up in her eyes. 
You know, and what I discovered as I was just thinking about my interaction and how I was a little snappy towards this young woman is that I was full of pride in that moment. I was thinking about what I deserved because of what I had done and it was rightfully mine, so I needed to get my food when I needed to get my food. And this is what we discover about pride. I mean, we have a lot of different uh, or a lot of wrong preconceptions about what pride is. Often, we think that pride is that feeling that you get, you know, maybe about your kids, how you're proud of who they are becoming and what they have achieved. Sometimes we think that pride is what you have about your business or about your work or your career, and it's all the hard work paid off, and you're proud of what you've accomplished in your job. Sometimes we think pride is what other people have when they have this unwavering confidence that they can achieve anything they set their mind to, and they're just so full of pride. We think that's what pride is. But I want us to think about pride like this. This gets more personal. Pride is not how we think about ourselves. Pride is not how we feel about ourselves. Pride is a posture that we take. Pride is not how we think about ourselves, how you think about yourself, how we feel about ourselves, how you feel about yourself. But pride is a posture that we take, saying that we are the most important one. We should be in charge. And this is why pride is so dangerous, because it's kind of sneaky the way it can take over our lives. You know, pride doesn't get all the headlines with the biggest sins possible, like murder or lying or stealing. But it is a big deal to God, and it can really derail us from who God has called us to be and who God dreams for us to be as people. I mean, it's a big deal to God. I mean, there gets a lot of press throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Solomon, the second wisest man who ever lived next to Jesus, he said this about pride. He said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, in Proverbs 16, 18. What happens right before the big destruction, before the bomb goes off, before everything good goes bad? Pride goes. And a haughty, like arrogant spirit, it comes before the fall of us individually. Right before the terrible thing happens, there's this little seed, a little gateway sin called pride. A prideful spirit thinking that we are superior. And when you think about it, pride was kind of the original sin beneath the sin, underneath the sin. I mean, we're, we're taught that the Satan, the great enemy, he was a fallen angel who thought he could do it better than God. And so he thought he was going to try to overthrow God. That was a prideful spirit in him. And it's pride that we see in Adam and Eve thinking they've got a better way in the Garden of Eden than what God had prescribed to them. Pride is a dangerous thing because it puts us ahead of God and it unseats God from his rightful place as king. And it says, no, God, I can do it better. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, I guess his friends just called him Augustine, a great early church father and theologian. He wrote this about pride. He said that pride is pregnant with all possible sin. Pride is pregnant with all possible sin. Pride is full of these, uh, these levers that can be pulled to go to other types of sin. It's the gateway sin that leads to everything else. Pride is so dangerous. Pride it will tarnish reputations. Pride will ruin careers. Pride will alienate friends. Pride will ruin marriages. And pride will cut you off from experiencing and knowing Jesus as your savior and as your friend and as your Lord. Pride is a really big deal. And that's why James gives it a lot of airtime, a lot of ink in his New Testament letter. 
So we are going to dive in right into James chapter 4, verses 1, and we're going to walk through the first nine verses of this chapter to see the problem that James sees in our pride and the antidote, the answer, the solution to our pride. So let's dive right in. James chapter 4, verse 1. He asks this rhetorical question. He says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's saying, hey, you know, when you look to your left and your right in your relational world, what's that thing that causes fights and tensions among you? And I think we answer this when we think about our marriages, we think about the relationship with our family, our kids, our coworkers, our boss. Uh, we answer this question pretty simply. We say, yeah, they do. <laughs> They're the ones that cause the fights. They're doing all these things that are annoying me. They're not following through on their word. If they would just do the thing they're supposed to do, the thing that they said that they would do, there wouldn't be fights. There wouldn't be tension in my relational world. But James sort of flips the script from what you and I would naturally say. And he says this, the end of verse one and all the way through verse two. Check this out. He says, don't they come, don't these fights and quarrels come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have. So you kill, you covet, or you're jealous, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. James knows that we are so quick to point the finger at other people as the source of all of our fights and all of our relational turmoil, but he points it right back at us and he says, it comes from you. It comes from your desires. And if you don't get what you want, you kill, you get jealous and you covet what you cannot have. This is a scary thing that James writes, but I think it's so true. All of our relational tension comes from us not getting something that we want, that we desire. Now, when we talk about desires and when James uses this phrase and he says that they come from your desires, I need us to understand that desires on their own are not a bad thing. It's not wrong to want things, to desire things. Actually, your heavenly father created you to have desires, the problem with our desires is when they get out of whack, when they get out of order, off kilter. And sometimes our desires, um, they, they mess us up and we expect other people to fulfill those desires. And that's what James is saying here. The desires aren't evil, but when our desires are out of whack, it causes pain because we want other people to satisfy them. And I think he uses some strong language here because he says, when you don't get what you want, when your desires aren't fulfilled, what do you do? He says here that you kill, you kill. And, and maybe he's not talking specifically about murder because I don't think we all naturally go there. But man, when we don't get what we want in our relational world, when we think that we're getting slighted, then we do kill. We kill with our passive aggressive words or we kill with an outburst. We kill by withdrawing from a relationship, closing off part of our heart to our loved ones by not giving our best effort at work. We do kill when we don't get what we want. James says that the reason that you have tension in your relational world is your pride. You're putting yourself in front of other people and it's causing tension in your world. Maybe you're stubborn. Maybe you are so um, dead set on getting this thing that you want that you will destroy and kill anything else in your path because you're prideful. You're thinking that you deserve it. You're arrogant enough to think the world revolves around you. James continues this thought and he gives some enlightening um thoughts into this world of our pride in our relational sphere. He says this, the end of verse two through verse three, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. 
When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And this goes back to the idea that our desires are not a bad thing. James says that we don't have because we're not asking God. We're looking at our spouse. We're looking at our coworker. We're looking at our kids, our family members to fulfill those desires. And we should be going to God first. We're not asking God. And then he goes on and he says that sometimes when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And this idea of pleasures that he puts here, it's this idea of hedonistic pleasures. It's this idea of doing whatever it takes to lustfully get what we want that will make us feel good. James is saying that you're seeking after something that's all for you to make you feel good. Your pride, you saying that you need to go first, that the lot in your life is so that you can be satisfied to satisfy these pleasures. And James is saying, this is why you're not getting what you want because you're asking for the wrong thing and you're asking the wrong person to fulfill it because you are so blinded by your pride. Now, let me ask you this question just to get this personal. Where in your relational world are you experiencing tension, fights, quarrels? Is it in your marriage it's where you've maybe cut a part of your heart off from them and you feel maybe like you're just decent roommates at this point? Is it with your kids to where there's a distance between you, where there's tension whenever they walk into the room because you're disappointed by them or they're disappointed by you because you're not getting the respect that you feel like they deserve and they feel like they're not getting the freedom that they deserve? Is it in your work relationships with the people that you work with or maybe that work for you where you're just so just done with them because you're not getting what you want at your job? I just want to throw this thought out in front of you. Maybe it's because we're putting our pride, a haughty spirit, a self-righteous spirit above other people. That's why we're feeling these tension points. There are so many moments in my marriage to Megan where um, I've had my pride uh, just pop out of nowhere and, or pop out beneath the surface and I've made some terrible decisions and I've just been too stubborn to listen to her, which most of the time would uh, stop a lot of pain and suffering. But I've just kept going the same direction because I've been prideful. It was uh, probably four or five years ago. Um, the band Coldplay was coming to Indianapolis, and they're one of my favorite bands, and I hadn't seen them in many, many years, and they were playing at Banker's Life Fieldhouse. The day that tickets went on sale, I got some really good tickets that were probably more expensive than what we were planning on um, spending anyway, but they were great seats. And as I was getting those tickets, I noticed there were some other tickets that were even better that were available. And I knew that this was going to be a sold-out show, and I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna go ahead and I'm gonna buy those other tickets and we'll sell them and make a profit. And maybe we'll even pay for the tickets for Megan and I. And so I say, Megan, I think I'm gonna do this. And she's like, hey, you've tried this before. This doesn't really work. You're not a ticket uh, broker here. Don't do this. And I'm like, no, this is gonna work this time. So I did it. And we have the hardest time selling those tickets. And I was so stubborn. I was just trying to make the money back by the end of the time. And it was just this really ridiculous situation. And I should have listened to her, but I was so blinded by my pride that I knew that this was going to work and it didn't. But that was the issue. I was blinded by my pride, blinding, blinded by being so stubborn. And maybe you have elements in your relational world where you're being blinded by being so stubborn. And maybe the temperature would drop in the conflict in your relationships if you would just stop before you start that next fight and be like, okay, this is because I am putting my pride ahead of what's most important. Maybe it's because 
I'm thinking that I'm the most important thing in this situation. And James says so clearly that pride brings conflict into our relationships, into our relational world. Then he turns the corner and he actually goes into the spiritual realm and he says, not only does pride cause conflict in our relationships, uh, pride causes conflict between us and God. In the very next verses, uh, verses four and five, James comes out swinging, talking about this conflict that pride brings between us and God. He says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, there's so much happening in this short couple verses, this passage. I need to break it down. But he starts by saying, hey, there's conflict between you and God when your pride gets in the way. But he says, you adulterous people. And he uses this marital, um, moral language of adultery to describe us. And what is he getting at here? He's saying that, hey, you have everything that you could possibly need in God. Those desires that you want, they can be fulfilled by God the Father, but you go looking for other places and other people to fulfill those desires in the same way that someone who cheats on their spouse does. They have everything in this marriage relationship, but they go looking for satisfaction in the wrong place. And James is saying you're an adulterer between you and God because you're looking for satisfaction in other places than him. And then he goes on to use this language of friendship of the world and enemy of God. And this is some militant language. If I can be honest with you, when we talk about being a friend of the world or an enemy of God, I mean, I have some baggage from growing up in a conservative religious community where um, I always think whenever we say, like, you know, we need to not be of the world, we're in the world, or don't be a friend of the world. I I always have this imagery of like, okay, the point is that we'll be evacuated out of the world to go to heaven, the really good place someday, so just wait for that. And that's not what James is getting at here at all. He says that there is this conflict between you and God when you buddy up to the world, and not the world that we live in, but the ways of the world. You see, you were created not to follow the customs or the normal way of doing life in this world. If you are a follower of Jesus, or if you consider Jesus to be who he says he is, that you were invited into a way that is not of this world, but it's out of this world. It's extraordinary, and it's better than the ways of this world. In other words, a way to be a friend of the world is for us to treat money um, like the world treats money. More of it, the better. I need to get stuff for me. The way the world treats pleasure, if it feels good, you should do it. And it doesn't matter what it does to you or to other people. If it feels good, you should do it. Do everything for you. Those are the ways of the world, the customs of our world. And Jesus teaches and Jesus invites us into a way that's not being friends of the world in that way, but but being a friend of God, which means that there's a better way for us to live our lives. There's a way of selflessness and a way of service and humility that that's how we were created to live. And James says, hey, when you live in the ways of the world, you're like a friend of the ways of the world. And God doesn't want you to be that way at all. God's got a better way for you. He actually continues on in the last thought that I think is beautiful, but you might find to be disturbing. It says here in verse five that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. God is jealous for you. Now that might be a disturbing thought or maybe a new thought. Like how could God be jealous? Jealousy is a bad thing. This is actually why people like Oprah Winfrey say they can never 
be a Christ follower. They can never trust the Bible because in the Bible, God is often described that he is a jealous God. He is jealous for us. And yes, jealousy in human relationships, it is destructive. And maybe you've felt that in your relational life, but jealousy in the spiritual realm is a different thing. I mean, consider this. Is God an unhealthy, jealous being if what he longs for is rightfully his? If he created it, if he sent his son to die for it because he loves it so much, then how could God be in like an evil, human, jealous God? That's not who God is. The reality is that God's jealousy for you is a way that he shows um, that he loves you and he's for you and he's for your flourishing. I mean, think about this and the beauty of this. God has always been. And God created you and he loves you. He sent his son for you. That last breath that you just took right now, God is sustaining you with that breath. And that's how massive and majestic our God is. And that God, that majestic, beautiful, all-powerful God, he longs for you to be in relationship with him. He longs for you to know him and to be found in him. Yes, God is jealous for you. And that's exactly what we want because when, or what we need because we don't find satisfaction outside of him. And so when God says he's jealous for us, oh, he's longing for you to know him and to trust him and to be found in him. Augustine, St. Augustine, the same guy who wrote about pride we quoted earlier, he said this in his classic confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We flourish when we're found in him, when we rest in him. So yes, God is jealous for you to flourish, for you to rest. And so what James is saying throughout this passage, through all these different illustrations about adultery and a friend of the world, enemy of God, and when he talks about how God is jealous for us, he's saying that there's conflict. Pride causes conflict between you and God. And he's also saying this, that our pride and our ego, it gets in the way of us experiencing life to the fullest. Author Wayne Dyer in the 70s said this. He defined ego as edging God out. That's what ego and pride is. It edges God out or it edges God off of where he deserves to be at the center of our life. And when we let pride get in the way, we edge God out of where he deserves to be in our lives as well. And it causes us so much strife between us and God and us and other people. Our ego and our pride gets in the way of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So James, so far in these first five verses, he's been pounding us with bad news. He's been telling us about the pitfall, the roadblock to us becoming mature called pride, how it gets in the way of our relationships and it gets in the way of our relationship with God as well. But then in verse six, he gives us some news, some good news. And he talks about the antidote to our pride. He says this in verse six, but he gives us more grace. All these issues and our pride can cause, the fights it causes relationally, how it makes us an enemy of God or on the wrong side of God. Those are big problems, but he says, but God steps in. He gives us a way out. He doesn't just give us the bad news. He gives us a step that we can take into the right direction. And the way that we get into the right direction, the place where God wants us to be is by experiencing his grace. You know, grace is this beautiful idea. It's this idea of undeserved favor, unmerited favor. It's this idea of do-overs and mercies when we mess up time and time again, countless second chances. And so James saying, I know that pride gets in the way, but you know what? God offers you more grace. In other words, you can't out-pride God's grace. God's grace is bigger 
than any of your pride and pride-filled notions about yourself. And he continues on his thought, and he really gives us the, the how we receive this more grace. And he tells us that it's really found in a posture that we take. And he says this in the end of verse 6. He says, that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And there's our key word, you guys. If we're going to defeat pride in our lives, we need to be people that are marked by humility. The cure to pride is humility. Humility, you guys, it's so powerful. Humility, it's a posture that we can take of listening, of learning, of loving and serving, of emptying ourselves for the benefit and for the growth and for the love of the other. I mean, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis about what humility is. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not about beating yourself down and having low self-esteem. It's thinking of yourself less often. In other words, it, we're not the center of our minds, the center of our hearts. We put somebody else there, notably God and other people. This is what humility says, and this is why it's so powerful, you guys. Humility says that I can't do it on my own. I can't white-knuckle my circumstances. I don't have enough willpower to do my life on my own. I need to look up, and I need to make sure I look for other people to serve because I am not big enough to be the center of my universe. Humility says that you go first. Yeah, it's not about me. It's not this posture that I get what I deserve come hell or high water. No, humility says that you go first and we're always looking for others to serve, others to put on platforms. So we're not the biggest deal. Humility says that I agree with God about who he says that I am. It's not beating yourself down, but it's agreeing with God that he is your heavenly father. And that means that you are a child and children need guidance. Children need grace. Children need to learn. And we need to put ourselves in a posture of listening and learning and following our perfect heavenly father. Humility is the cure and the antidote to pride in our lives. And you know who understood humility and the posture of humility so well? James, the author of this letter. Now, church history tells us that James had a really interesting nickname. I, I find this to be so weird and fascinating. This was James's nickname as he lived towards the end of his life. People called him Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees. That would be a terrible nickname. I don't think any rappers should come out, um, you know, MC Old Camel Knees. I don't think that would really sell too well today. Maybe it would. I don't know. But that was what he was called, Old Camel Knees. And, and so, so church history tells us this about James. There was a second century Christian writer and he wrote about James's life, and he's saying that he was known for taking the posture of being on his knees often. When he would pray, he would always take the posture of getting on his knees to show humility before God as he would pray and as he would worship. That's why he was called Old Camel Knees, because he was known to be on his knees so much so that they were calloused. His knees were calloused like an old camel. Look at that posture that James took, humbly submitting to his heavenly father saying that you are in charge, God. I come to you, not as a rock star, not as this leader that everybody should look up to, but as a humble servant. This is the posture of humility, and James taught us this with his life. And James, he, he finishes this thought in the next two verses, and as we get more practical, this is what I think the challenge for us to, to walk into a lifestyle of humility, this is the challenge and the invitation that James gives us to do it. It's right here in the next verses. He says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
the key to resisting the devil and coming near to God and God coming near to you is a life of humble submission to God. It's humbly submitting everything that you have and everything that you are to your heavenly father. And I think this is a challenge in so many ways for all of us, no matter where we are on the spiritual continuum, because many of us are comfortable with the idea of Jesus as our savior, but not Jesus as our Lord, as our leader, as our king, as the CEO of our lives. We're comfortable with Jesus as our savior because Jesus as savior gets us off the hook for all of our wrongdoings. Jesus, our savior, gets us a ticket to all of eternity without punishment and with him. But Jesus, our Lord, it costs us something. It's a challenge to us. I mean, let me challenge you this morning. You know, Step on your toes a little bit because I love you. But some of you are stuck because of this. For some of you, you're about to walk away from faith, from Jesus, from church, because you're stuck because you're just following Jesus as your Savior and not really following him as your Lord. Let me ask you a couple questions, some uncomfortable questions maybe. Have you positioned God to be a part of your life? but not the leader of your life? Have you given him dominion over certain areas of your life, like what you do on Sunday mornings, but there's certain areas of your life where you say, God, you know, stay away from there. I mean, stay away from that financial thing. Stay away from where my thoughts go. Stay away from how I act and talk at work, but I'll give you Sunday mornings. Maybe there's just areas where they're off limits to him, and that's not submitting yourself humbly to him. Here, let me ask you this. Are, are you the type of person where you only call out to God when something wrong is going on? You only talk to him when stuff is hitting the fan and you don't know what to do, so you just look up? I mean, God doesn't want to just be your 911 call. God wants to be there walking with you through the mundane, the low, the little moments in life and the big moments of life because he wants a relationship with you. But do you only call to God when something goes terribly wrong? Are there areas of your life that are off limits to him. This idea of submitting yourself to God, it is so powerful and so beautiful, you guys, but it's, it's a challenge to all of us as well. And maybe that's why some of us are stuck. I mean, in America, we don't like our idea, we don't like the idea of submitting ourselves to anybody or anything. We're we're skeptical of institutions and anybody above us. I mean, we have this American freedom mindset that we shouldn't have to submit ourselves to anything. But let me give you this thought. What if maximum freedom was found under ultimate authority? What if maximum freedom and a life-giving life was found under the ultimate authority of God? What if he wants something for you, not to take something away from you? What if submitting your whole life to him, oh man, it opened up a world of possibilities and freedom that is, would be incredible for you to experience and it would kill pride in your life? You guys, humbly submitting our lives to God is the antidote and it's the solution to our pride so it doesn't choke us in our relationships with others and kill us between our relationship between us and God. Let me leave you with this thought. You guys, if pride is pregnant with all possible sin as Augustine taught us, then humility under the authority of Jesus is pregnant with all possibility of joy and life and freedom. Ultimate freedom and ultimate life is found under God's authority, submitting every part of our life to him. And some of you, maybe for the first time, need to offer your life up to him, submitting yourself humbly, all of yourself to him and others of us. We've done it before, but we've slipped to where we're now in the driver's seat and maybe Jesus is in the passenger seat or maybe in the trunk. 
And we all need to take that step because pride, it is so dangerous and it leads to all other levels of destruction of our life. But Jesus offers us a life of humility and he honors the humble. And that's where we should take our next steps, humbly submitting all of ourselves to him.